Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast number 14. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week we are going to run through some questions and then I'm going to talk a little bit about working with actors, production companies. Okay, questions. Is it a good idea to shoot a teaser trailer to promote a spec script? Now, Stuart asked me this question. I think that the, the situation would really dictate whether or not it's a good idea. Here's when it's not a good idea. If you just have a spec script and you're just trying to get attention for that spec script, you end up filming something in order to promote it. No, that's fucking bullshit. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of everybody who helps you. It's a waste of their time. And the chances, by the way, that you could even direct something or create a teaser for very little money that would make a difference or get put some eyes on your script um, and be good is nearly impossible. Like the idea that you would not only have a great spec script, but that you'd be able to put together a great two minute short or film or piece uh, segment thing is to me a completely ridiculous proposition. In fact, I have a friend who's shooting a movie this summer as a director for a major studio. And I can't imagine that if he was just on his own with like a cheap digital camera and some friends, I don't think that he would have been able to deliver something that would have been that awesome in terms of, you know, filming some scenes from the script that he is going to be directing this summer. So I, I, I just think it's a waste of time. I see people do this a lot. Save your money. Hire somebody like me. I will tell you if the script's good enough. If it's if it is, I get it to the right people. If it's not, I tell you what you need to be doing. Um, what you don't need to be doing though is shooting a teaser so that somebody you know might get interested in your spec script or inter because really all you're saying then is I'm shooting this teaser to get somebody to read my spec script and you know ultimately if you can't do that in a quarter of a page query letter, the film that you create is not going to do that. Now, here's where it can make a difference. If you're in the low-budget film space, if you've never directed anything before and you're attached to direct a project and you're trying to raise money from people who are not part of the film industry, if you're going to dentists and doctors and so forth um, to get 50 grand, 100,000, $250,000, then absolutely. If you're just dealing with like outside financiers, people who really don't know any better, then by all means shoot that teaser because what you're saying is, I'm going to shoot a film for 150 grand or 200 grand. I'm going to make a return, hopefully, of 300 or 400 grand. And this is my proof that I'm going to be able to deliver you a product along the lines of what you think the final product will actually be. So in that case, Stuart, uh, it would make sense. If you're working with a financier, though, who wants one, I mean, again, I would say, well, what's the plan here? Before I go out and shoot a bunch of shit for you just because you said that you wanted it, um, what is it that you're planning on doing with this? Who are you going to show it to? And so forth. And then I'd really look again at the script itself because to me that's really where the the rubber hits the road and um, you you know ultimately are being evaluated on. Uh, Brandon asked me a question about one sheets. A again, one sheets are for... One sheets, by the way, are a beginning to end, almost like a mini treatment. It fits on one page, and they're often used as what's called leave behinds, which are, you know, a something that you do if you're pitching people, especially if you're at like a pitch fest or something like that, where people are being pitched a lot of stuff. You leave them behind this one page thing, um, and it usually hits on all of the important stuff in the script from beginning to end. I, again, keep in mind, this is like if you're going to pitch fests and things like that. Yes, you need a really good one sheet. If you're not, do you need one? No. I mean, 
In my professional capacity, I was rarely left behind one sheets. The time that we did come up with one sheets is like if we were going to be pitching a reality show or something like that. Or if there were a bunch of, you know, concepts we were going out with. But again, not like screenplays. The the screenplay is either somebody wants to read it or they don't. And, you know, if you've had five minutes to pitch somebody and they don't want your screenplay, I don't know what the hell the one page leave behind does. Although in some pitch fest situations, by the way, pitch fests are, um, there's, there's a couple big ones. There's the Great American Pitch Fest coming this summer in L.A. And it's where there's a lot of production companies. They'll throw an executive or an intern or assistant or whatever, but they send somebody and they'll sit there and listen to pitches. And it's like you get like five minutes if you're a writer to sit down with that person and pitch them one or more things. Um, here's a, a little bit of a, a tip though, Brandon, I would leave off the last act because if you're giving them the story and they're totally interested in reading all the way through that page, why would you want to tell them how it concludes? I, I just think that it's, you want to leave something to the imagination or something that teases them so they don't feel like they've had the full meal. However, here's where you do include it. And this might seem counterintuitive. This is my advice. And by the way, please remember when I'm giving advice, this is my opinion. And you are free to take from it whatever wisdom you can divine from it. But again, this is just me speaking off the cuff, figuring this shit out. I think that the best time to actually tell if you, ha uh, if you have a big twist is in the case that you have a big, massive twist. If you, a lot of the value of your film is sort of in the reveal, then that's not something you want to leave off of a one sheet because how, again, your goal is to get people to read it and you don't want to leave too much on the field. However, if in the case that it's a third act, just sort of more of a traditional third act that wraps things up, then don't tell us about how exactly how they do it. Leave it, um, you know, something with a dot, dot, dot so that somebody's, you know, tantalized and wants to request the script and read it. Jeremiah has a kind of complicated thing here, but he talks about how he's heard several stories about where screenwriters get bitter because of the daring, intelligent script that they wrote, pushed the envelope, and then it got butchered. For example, somebody told me the original script for Pretty Woman was a much darker, edgier story than the version of Pretty Woman we know. It makes me want to start a production company where we take classic movies like Pretty Woman, go find the original draft of the script Hollywood didn't dare to make, and then we make that movie. Well, Jeremiah, it's a ridiculous idea because, first of all, the rights to all of the scripts of Pretty Woman from the beginning to the end are all packaged with the film property. And again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know exactly how this shit works, but I do know that you can't just go back and cherry pick the one draft of Pretty Woman that you really liked, whether it be the first draft, 14th draft, or 28th draft. You have to kind of buy the whole kit and caboodle, and that's not something that you can do, especially if you're not at another studio. And Disney owns Pretty Woman, and they are completely, you know, if somebody's going to remake Pretty Woman, it's going to be Disney. So, and also, here's the second part of it. You know, when you hear about these, oh, they it was darker and edgier and they took it away. Well, you know, studios need to do that. We talked about that a little bit. This actually came from his comments about no strings attached. And I really like Jeremiah's comments on that, where he talked about how even in a movie that's sort of as sexually progressive as a film that deals with the idea of fuck buddies, which was the original title of the script, Jeremiah pointed out that that both characters, Natalie Portman character and the Ashton Kutcher character, were sleeping with other people. And in the film version, they show them dabbling with the idea of that and then pulling back. 
And, you know, that's something that was done to sort of sanitize the material to make it, to not undermine the, the sympathy that we would have for the characters. And, you know, I feel like um, with this question, you're asking, well, why don't we go back to the more original, better version? But it probably isn't the better version. I mean, I think that's sort of what we, we lose. You know, you have writers run around and say, well, my version was better than what they ended up making. And people always say that until the version that gets made is better than the version that they wrote. And then they either still say, well, my version was better than that, or they take part in the credit for this film that has gotten made. And I'm not saying that these writers don't deserve credit sometimes, but I can tell you that in a lot of cases, the when you see somebody story by credit on a film, their actual participation in what we see in the rest of the movie is very rarely there. And I can think of one example of a tentpole movie that I saw where we were looking at the writer for something and he had this huge tentpole sequel coming out. And, you know, essentially the only thing that I could divine from reading this script that this writer had was that he created the villain. That's what he probably got the, that's probably why they bought his pitch. He went in, he pitched, okay, this is my idea for a sequel and this is the villain I'm gonna put our established returning hero up against. And they said, wow, we love the idea of that. That's a totally different type of hero, villain. And they bought his pitch and he wrote a script and everything that came after that was based on that original script being developed. But again, the the final film really did not resemble the, the script that this writer had written. But I'm sure, you know, when, when it came to the manager pitching his writer, he was the writer of this thing. Well, no, he was the story by guy. Incidentally, though, like I just saw Oz the Great and Powerful, which I definitely recommend you see. And with that movie, you know, the story by credit, uh, which went to Mitchell Kapner, who wrote The Whole Nine Yards, his script actually was very similar. I don't have it. It's packed away somewhere. I, that was one of those scripts that I couldn't even get via email. I had to get a print copy of it. Um, and like literally it was okay you can read it but you've got to have the print copy you can't have it so you can you know anyway um, so I have the print copy somewhere I haven't looked at it but it did a lot of that movie really was there originally so I can't speak to how how different it is is it 20% was originally there or 40% but it felt very much like the script and the characters that were set up were quite definitely there in the original conception of this pitch that was sold and in the draft that was delivered and I don't know how much work he did on you know that project so you know, also, some movies do need to be sanitized. Do we think The Pretty Woman would have made $190 million domestic, which is probably close to like 250 to $300 million adjusted for inflation? Do we think that movie would have done that business if it hadn't been a cotton candy Gary Marshall comedy? I, I don't think so. Paul had a question about protagonist's point of view, and the question's kind of complicated, so I'm going to have to skip the question. But he does talk about having almost zero scenes without the hero. And I think that's really important. That's why I wrote a book called The Starter Screenplay. It's all about sort of tracking the hero's narrative and not giving in to, you know, I'm listening to a lot of the John Truby stuff, and he talks about Mary Poppins a lot. And the weird thing about Mary Poppins is that she's the hero of the film, but the father is the one with the character arc, and the kids are really really sort of bland supporting characters but he's often talking about the arc and he talks about the father and how and the father sings this song about everything having to be about precision and doesn't know how to have fun and all that stuff's true and the father has the whole arc but he's not the hero and 
And I just don't recommend that you do that um, unless it's sort of a two-hander because the thing, if you listen to the other John Truby stuff he talks about is that uh, the hero of Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins, is a traveling angel, very much like Ferris Bueller, and that character is perfect in every way, which is actually something the character says in that movie, uh, that she's perfect in every way. So that character does not have sort of that internal arc or that problem that needs to be dealt with. And that goes, that essentially will be assigned to another character in the film. Uh, so here, you know, again, I suggest writing the movie that features a hero who has the problem need, who, ha who has that internal arc and the external journey that they're going on um, with the external problems that that entails. But the one thing that I did learn, and I learned this when I was 16, when I took Chris Lockhart's summer course at UCLA, was, and, I, and this has stuck with me, is three pages away from the hero maximum. Three and I think that's in my book. I think I have a little section on that. Three pages away from the hero. You can have scenes that don't involve your hero. Just make sure they're the villain scenes or are of real story arc importance to a supporting character. Very often those get cut from the movie or not filmed in the first place. But I think that that's something you can keep in mind. Okay, some quick announcements here. I just checked in with my friend John Foy. I, I still don't have that episode for you because my hard drive has been removed from my computer and it's on there and it needs to be edited. But if you have Netflix, watch Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. Roger Ebert put that in his top five documentaries of the year uh, when it came out. It was it came out about two or three years ago. And, you know, John won Best Director at Sundance for it. So I'm not steering you into a shitty documentary. And one day there will be a podcast that's up uh with an interview with John. So also remember, I'm going to be doing a full or at least hour-long commentary of Color of Night with Bruce Willis. That is a 1994 film. The first hour is spectacular. It's a two-hour and 20-minute movie that really shouldn't be because it's very much sort of a genre thriller. So it certainly does not deserve to be that long. And I think the last you know, hour or the, the events that happen after the first hour um, leading to the 20-minute climax are really problematic because the film runs in circles. But it's got beautiful cinematography, it's got a great score, and it has some really interesting whack job performances by some, you know, really cra with really crazy characters uh, and great character actors just chewing the scenery and having fun with it. So definitely check that out. Again, if you're in L.A., email me. I run a screenwriting class. People are dropping in on the screenwriting class. I think mean, it's kind of cool that people can come and check it out for one session and see if they're interested in it. So if you're in L.A., email me about that. Also, um, if you go to my website, you know, a lot of people have not signed up for my mailing list. Well, I only send out super important shit to people on my mailing list. I am not constantly sending new things out every week. I'm not sending things out every other week. Once a month, I send important shit. Here's what I sent last or for March. I already sent the email. Here's what it was. It was links to hundreds and hundreds of studio unproduced scripts. 
some of the greatest scripts, sort of the blacklist before the blacklist, uh, all the unproduced shit you'd ever want to read from Naked Gun 4 to the Napoleon script that Stanley Kubrick wrote to, you know, tons of stuff that, again, you might not have heard of, but that I looked at and my eyes popped open because I was like, damn, whoever put this file together was really saving the cream of the crop. The stuff that floated around Hollywood as to this is too dangerous, edgy or uncommercial, but God, do we love reading this shit because um, there's a lot of that that floats around Hollywood. That That's the link that I sent to the people who are on my mailing list. So go to officialscreenwriting.com, check that out, and while you're there, check out my services page, because, again, if it's March, you're listening to this, you can hire me for 299 bucks to read your script. I will read it. I will do notes on the PDF. I will write up separate notes, and we will talk about it. $299. I also have this $99 consultation where people hire me to read uh, up to five pages of whatever it is. Is it a short film? Is it your log lines? Is it, you know, again, I don't recommend just sending me log lines. I recommend short paragraphs, long paragraphs, a couple of one pagers, whatever it is in order so that I can get a sense of what your concept is, whether it works, if it does work, how to make it better, if it doesn't work, how to possibly fix it, or to tell you to move the hell on because the idea doesn't work and here's why. And the coolest thing is that the people who are doing this with me, this $99 consultation, there are also, I'm, I'm looking right here at some of my notes because I want to talk real quickly about some of the things we can all learn from some of the things that have come up in these discussions. Because the coolest thing is that I get to talk with the writer a lot about what their experience has been. You know, is it the first script they've wrote, written or have they written 10 scripts? And if so, what has their experience been with Hollywood? And I'll share one really quickly with you because it happened this week where um, a client of mine had hired somebody to help her with the pitch and that's okay you know she paid somebody a hundred bucks to help her sort of craft a one pager or a way to sort of present the material or the basically to write sort of an extended uh query letter sort of um so she put together this one pager with this guy who offers this service and he had given her actually a couple of really good names of people to submit it to and i was impressed with that and i've actually spoken to her twice so I, I the first part is sort of my wow well you know those are some really good names i think it's interesting that he's letting you use his name to get to these people and he hasn't even read your script i, I found that kind of odd because that's not the kind of thing i would ever do but you know like more power to him if that's if, if it works for him to use his name to get to people that you can't get to otherwise and he's willing to put that out there for a 100 bucks then fine uh Go, go, go crazy because these are some really good suggestions in terms of the companies you should go to. So she did. And I checked in with her a couple weeks later because we were talking about another topic. And she and I said, well, how did that go? Did any of those leads pay off? And she said, no, I couldn't get my script into any of these companies. And I said, well, how is that possible? What? And she goes, I called and they just said that they wouldn't accept anything from an unrepresented writer. And I was like, wait a minute, did you did you call the main line? Did you, I mean, how did you get to the executives? And she goes, oh, I didn't get to the executives. I just spoke to the person who was on the phone that answered it. And thank God that we I talked with her, right? Because she did it the wrong way. The right way was she should have tracked down these people's email addresses and emailed them the letter or faxed it to them. And it's interesting, Danny Manis, who I may have on the program at some point, questioned me on the fax machine thing. I think the fax machine is great, and here's why. Because people have to look at it. You can't just throw it out. It doesn't It doesn't come across like a query letter, because query letters come from all over the world, you, you know, and you kind of sort of know just based on looking at the 
the envelope a fax comes in and somebody doesn't know who you are where you're from an assistant doesn't know if if their boss has talked about this project with somebody and that's why it came through the fax you really just don't know so i i, I think again um this is something where the client was just wrong in like the tiniest way she made the phone call instead of doing the email the right way was the email and this is otherwise she would have been like dead in the water she considered herself dead in the water and just by me saying well you do it a little bit differently than the way that you thought about doing it i reconceptualized just the way that she was going to approach getting this script out there and i believe that she's had some success with submissions on it so you know again talking with somebody who knows what they're dealing with because it must be so confusing i know I, I know what it's like, by the way, because I, I did start very early in the industry, meaning I was interning, you know, for a literary agent when I was 18. Then when I was 19, I interned at a production company for the summer uh, on, the, on the Warner Brothers lot, a pretty big company, actually. And I was always working with people and always asking a thousand questions. So I know what it's like not to really understand the system and understand the ins and outs of it. Um, but the one thing that you can do is ask questions to somebody like me and I'm happy to talk to you about it. Okay, let's move on. I'm looking at right or right now I'm listening to the True B genre courses. I really suggest if you have if you work within a particular genre, you should be listening to it. Um, you can go to his website and download for 50 bucks. There's no book on this stuff, but the information he puts together in basically a two-hour audio presentation is phenomenal. And I want to point out that, again, it, you know, your job when you get information like this is not to say, now I have everything I need to write my script. If you do, you're, you're an idiot because these audio courses were literally recorded 23 or 24 years ago. So it's your job to say, here, I have everything that we've learned about the concepts of these genres as they apply to screenwriters, which is very different than just general film analysis stuff. I mean, I think back to my USC experience, a lot of it's great, very little of it related to screenwriting. Um, so when you look at these courses, you know, it's your job to sort of make sense of them afterwards, to take all this information, then look at, well, what is the last 25 years? What has that brought us? How have things changed? And how am I gonna do something a little different while working within these boundaries? And I think that that's uh, always an interesting thing to do. If you want a really good thing, though, um, check out my Twitter feed. If you look me up, Starter Script, and then you look at my tweets, just keep scrolling down. I bet you could probably stay entertained for at least 30 minutes or 45 minutes. There are some really great links to articles, things that I forwarded, things that I think are worthwhile, some really funny stuff. Um, I, I try to go through because I'll tweet a lot and then I try to delete a lot of the tweets because sometimes I'll just be stuck or I'll get sucked into making some political tweets or, you know, I'll repeat myself a lot if I'm promoting something. So I try to go through and, and delete those so that you can actually entertain yourself just by scrolling through my Twitter stuff, linking to some of the articles that I think that are important. And again, you're free to email me and let me know what you found helpful. Last question is on making contact with companies that are not sort of part of the beaten path. Again, I, I think InkTip is the way to do it. I think that you can list your script on InkTip and filmmakers from all over the world are looking for stuff that doesn't mean that they're going to make a great movie out of it. But hey, the script's probably not that great, you know, like there's no reason that you shouldn't still sell it to somebody. Um, so, you know, listening with InkTip and seeing if anybody looks at it is a really good way to say, is this something that works? Because 
if nobody's reading it based on your log line or by or your short summary that you put up well then why would you waste your time trying to get a major agent or manager to read it i mean it clearly is not blowing people's socks up um off okay so oh i put up a really cool thing on how did this get made my favorite podcast ever to this point is how did this get made which is three comedians one of whom at least i know i know june diane raphael is a screenwriter she wrote bride wars um which is a movie that i don't even understand how it exists but and they probably won't cover on the show because uh, bride wars just doesn't it the concept of it did not make sense to me if you remember it was kate hudson and anne hathaway as two friends who end up getting married on the same day and then they both have to have it at the same hotel the the weddings and they it turns into this totally arbitrary war i don't think anybody thinks that movie works um but it's three comedians talking about bad movies and they they're usually fun bad movies or a lot of times they'll actually talk about movies that i think are not bad but just wildly extreme and gratuitous uh examples of that they've done crank the devil's advocate roadhouse punisher warzone fast five and all of those movies they essentially celebrated they recognized wow this movie's just bonkers but in the greatest way possible like really um glorious thrill rides of insane ideas characterized with top talent at their most creatively unhinged and i think you know personally that to me is what i appreciate about cinema about reading scripts like that where i just say wow i fucking love these ideas this is so out there um and yet it works so well so they do a lot of those where they say i love this movie i had the greatest time watching this movie they're not all bad movies sometimes they do incompetent movies last week they did from justin to kelly they did liz and dick the tv movie which was atrocious i actually uh, did some tweeting on that one watching it because there was i needed to provide some entertainment value so me shitting on it was the only thing i could come up with um sleepaway camp jaws 4 birdemic the room they'll do like incompetent films uh they also do movies that are you know auteurs jumping the shark i would consider wicker man Gili as examples of that people who've directed four star great films award-winning films who have so much freedom that they end up making a film that only a great filmmaker with a blank check from a studio um and without creative interference could deliver something you know again like Gilly the wicker man i think they should do bonfire the vanities or barry levinson's toys which are both massive creative misfires and uh they also do production what i call production madness movies uh movies where it's sort of the same thing as auteur jumps the shark except the movie doesn't work as well because the talent isn't up there um usually these are also characterized with amazing production design but a lot of genre confusion and examples they've done are super mario brothers barbed wire nothing but trouble i think they should do tank girl death smoochie adventures of ford fairlane definitely fits into that if you haven't seen the adventures of ford fairlane do yourself a favor get that movie it's insane it is a rennie harlan film uh rennie harlan of die hard 2 and long kiss goodnight fame produced by joel silver and it was the it was the film starring debut of andrew dice clay playing a rock and roll detective and the movie is just 
crazy. It's got a million different ideas shoved into it, all many of which you can recognize as the work of really talented screenwriters. Um, so, and, and by, like Daniel Waters is credited on it, who wrote Heathers. So they were working with a lot of really great writers, and the movie, again, it's, is it atrocious? Yeah. Is it fun? I think so. I think it's, I think it's definitely worth watching. Um, so now I'm going to talk real quickly about working with actors, production companies. I almost bailed on talking about this because I feel like this is not something that new writers need to concern themselves with. You don't have to worry about actors, production companies, and here's why. Actors, production companies get to spend their time dealing with all the top writers in Hollywood, and that's because actor writers like every like look it's cool to meet and hang out and work with celebrities it's a cool thing to do it's cool to say hey i had a meeting with will smith or tom cruise or you know brad pitt or whoever um and because of that oh and also there's an additional benefit to these writers working with those actors which is that if the collaboration goes well there's more work that that actor can immediately put them onto as opposed to a producer who's kind of stuck with whether or not they have a movie going into production and you know if you can write really well for will smith and you create some great will smith dialogue that really fits his persona then you could get work on multiple movies i don't know that will smith works like that but my point being like if you're a producer just because you deliver for a producer it doesn't mean the producer has another movie to do whereas will smith definitely has multiple movies that he could possibly do next and that he has wor writers working on so the top writers gravitate towards those companies and those jobs and you know that means that they're not as interested in working with new writers that doesn't mean if you write a great spec script that a manager can't submit it to that company it just means that you know if you don't have representation why try to you know you're just not going to get to anybody good or anybody who can actually move your project forward um the second thing about the thing you it, let's assume that you do though because i have a couple thoughts here um the mandate of these companies can change constant it changes constantly because actors are sort of in this interesting, unique position where they don't have to necessarily want the same thing from week one to week two to week three. And it's not really the job of the staff to service past needs, meaning that, you know, Warner Brothers sort of figures out what they want to do in the following year and what kind of projects they're looking for. And there needs to be some stability there so that people know what to submit to them and writers know what to craft in order to bring it into them to serve those needs. But with an actor's production company, it doesn't have to be that. And that's their right. They Whatever they want at any given moment is what they want. And the staff's job is to service that, meaning that it's the staff shot to bring them projects or look for projects that fit whatever they seem to whatever the last thing they were told to look for is what they should be looking for um so you know the mandate again can change constantly and that's something that you know one minute you might be developing something with them and then the next minute they're not interested in it anymore um that happens the good news though is that usually you can walk away with what all the work that you've done oh here's the second part of it which is that usually you have to go through a process to get to the talent so i worked at a production company with an actor where for a period of time i was that sort of one of the middle people well i, I guess i was the middle person for everybody outside of the actor's agency um where in, inside the actor's agency they sort of would put him in meetings with the the really top people and everything and that was something that the agents handled but all the other agencies i was the only person dealing with those uh all the literary departments so all the other people sort of had to come through me and 
you know, again, my job was basically to let all these other agencies know that our company was active and that we were looking for things and to meet with their writers and to sort of plant the bug in the, the writer's head. Hey, um, you know, we're here, so please consider us or think about us when you're coming up with ideas. Um, so the, the thing that sometimes occurs when dealing with an actor's production company is they're going to need to go through somebody to get to the actor because they're not going to put the actor in a zillion meetings. Um, the thing, though, to keep in mind is that you may have to do some work. And the person who you're dealing with, whatever the development executive uh, that you're dealing with, will often give you notes. And you're not forced to, you're not forced to, you know, sort of rewrite your script based on these notes, but you might. You know, it's really up to you to figure out, does this benefit the script? I dealt with so many writers and developed so many pitches that ended up getting passed on where the, um, you know, once the writer brought it back and I sort of sent it up the chain, uh, it was a pass. And, you know, that's something that occurs a lot. It occurs more often than not. I mean, think about it. We're talking about a company that might get 500, 600 submissions in a given year. And how many times are we going to be able to say yes in total? Not many. Um, of course, we don't develop anywhere near that amount of stuff, even on sort of the internal stuff where like somebody brings us something where like, hey, we well, might want to address these things. Um, and also, you know, development executives, they will work with you, though, to make the material more appealing to the talent that they work for because they know what the talent is looking for and how they look at material. Talent can look at it from whatever angle they want to. There's no right and wrong with that stuff. You know, I sometimes suggest, you know, there is a right and wrong way to say develop a script. Um, there is a right and wrong on whether a script is good or not and, and if it works. But, you know, when it comes to talent, it's all about what the talent wants or how they look at it and what interests them about certain characters. And, you know, that's something that a development executive can help you with and say, hey, you know, the talent really likes this topic or this subject or this hobby or whatever it is. And you can use that to your advantage. Um, and here's the other deal. And this is true of working with producers, too. And I've said this in my book. I think my book has even if you totally ignore the first half of the book, which is like these are the things I think about screenplay, some of which I stand behind, some of which I think, wow, you know, now that I know so much more about genre and, you know, I was inspired by Save the Cat to write my book. But, you know, I, I've learned a lot more since then. And I think some of it's really good information, but even if you skip the entire first half of my book, the second half of the book is filled with great information about interacting with the industry. And one of the things that especially goes on with writers' companies is that they pass on a lot that they've developed. Um, and then, well, the, you know, usually that's a legal question. Like, okay, if you've worked with a, a producer and, you know, you came in with a pitch and then suddenly this pitch became one treatment followed by another treatment followed by another treatment followed by maybe a first act of a script or a whole spec script and the company doesn't want to do anything with it meaning that the company does not want to take it to buyers um at, in that or the company takes it to buyers and can't sell it that's the other thing that happens a lot of the time where some a, a producer will develop something a lot with the writer but then they can't sell it they don't have the relationships they can't get it into every studio whatever it is so in that case, you have to have it sort of up front. And of course, with actors' companies, they don't care about tying you up in knots. Sometimes producers will, though. 
A smart producer sometimes looks to tie people up in knots so that they can basically, it's called chaining yourself to a project where you're not helping anymore. You're basically just there on the project in case somebody else ever wants to pick it up. And that's not a good thing. So you usually want to sort of put it out there. And again, this is, by the way, email is wonderful because people will promise you anything. You know, people in Hollywood are trained to tell you whatever you want to hear. That's how they're trained. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it's your job to sort of get that stuff in writing. So get it in writing. Have them send you an email and say, hey, you just said to me this, that, and the other thing. I want to confirm that's correct. Um, you know, you shoot an email to them and just say, hey, look these points over because th this is what you said in our discussion. Point one, you know, we're going to work together on this thing. We're, you're going to give me feedback. I'm going to work with you. Point two, you're going to be allowed to take it out to studios and stuff. And point three, if you can't sell it within, you know, five or six months or whatever it is, I get it back. Um, and again, that, that presupposes that they're still interested or claim to be trying to sell it because that's a really sticky area when it comes to producers, you know. Did they try to sell it this month? Well, who knows? If they said that they did, how can you prove otherwise, you know? Um, so you wanna sort of put a time limit on it sometimes. Um, with an actor's company though, it's like, hey, we're not interested, we're not doing anything with this, we're not attaching our actor, therefore you can go. Or, you know, sometimes an executive will have latitude in order to pursue projects or set up projects under the company banner where they say, look, we're not attaching the actor, but we're gonna try to set this up. You know, usually, though, when it comes to actors' companies, I guess this is the last point, it really doesn't work like that, though. It doesn't work to have stuff that could be for the actor but that you're not attaching the actor to. Um, that doesn't work. You can say set up something that's completely outside the realm of who the actor is, meaning that, you know, uh, if Will Smith's production company wants to set up something, wants to set up the new version of Annie, which of course happens to be for his daughter, happened to be for his daughter. You know, Annie was set up as a project for Willow Smith, but let's just assume that it wasn't. Let's assume that like the development executive at, at Overbrook uh, Productions was friends with a writer who came up with a really cool take on Annie. And the stu you know, that production company is at Sony. Sony owns the rights to Annie because Columbia paid it like a record amount of money back in 1977, I think, to get the rights to Annie. So, of course, they're looking, and you know, this is the thing that I love about film today. We know what they're looking to do. They're looking to do the properties they already own. We know they're looking for Annie. So let's say the two friends were hanging out on a weekend getting stoned or drinking, and they came up with, oh, wouldn't this be an awesome way to reboot Annie? Um, and that person works at, you know, the executive works at Overbrook. Well, why would he give that away? Why not, why not just take that project into Sony, assuming that Will Smith was okay with that? Because some actors don't want anything going out there that's not part of their company. Others do. Um, but let's say that he's cool with like, hey, you know, more, you know, more money for us if we can get movies going. Um, and sometimes, by the way, actors don't even have to give approval to stuff like that. Like, you, you know, a, theoretically, a development executive could have the latitude in many cases to take whatever the hell they want into the studio because they're trusted, you know, to use their judgment and so forth, especially if the actor is not attached uh, as anything other than a producer, which they would be because development executives, you are working for a producer. Uh, the producer just happens to also be an actor. So in that in this sort of imaginary scenario, they take Annie into Sony and suddenly Will Smith's company is producing Annie because the studio buys the pitch. In this case, they were looking for something a little bit different. But my point being that it's not, that would be a different situation than say developing something for an actor and the actor saying, well, you know, uh, this, 
Mr. and Mrs. Smith project is not for me, even though I could star in it, but let's set it up and then see if somebody else wants it. Like that tends not to happen because Will Smith could have starred just for the, for instance, that we're using. He could have been the star of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, so, you know, that tends to get a little bit uh, dicey because, and also usually the writer wants to take it to other talent at that point. Um, so in any case, that's what I have for you this week. I know that that was sort of long and rambling uh, on how actors, production companies can work, do work, sometimes work. Uh, just to run through, again, Resurrect Dead, Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. Check it out on Netflix. Please check out Color of Night. I will eventually have a running commentary or at least a one-hour commentary on the movie Color of Night. I think you'll like it a lot. It's ridiculous, but you'll have fun, and you may or may not, uh, do not read about it, though. Do not read about that movie. Please, please, please. You can uh, sign up for my mailing list at officialscreenwriting.com and get awesome links from me, like, hey, here's where you can find 500 unproduced studio screenplays. Um, check out, you know, remember, if it's March, $299 to read your script. You go to my website, you make payment for a rewrite console, because that's what I charge for a rewrite, uh, but you get the full script consultation and with i also have my 99 dollars consultation i think that is such a great resource just imagine you know in the last week i talked to somebody who's a really intelligent guy a doctor uh who i'm sure is listening hey what's up and you know he had like five ideas and one or two of them worked and one of them was like really good and you know th that's so important imagine because writers tend not to be able to put their finger on the one that really works and yet writers also come up with bad ideas you have to come up with bad ideas bad ideas there's no shame in coming up with bad ideas you have to be open-minded enough to brainstorm stuff that just sucks and you know to me it's so much better to have that opportunity to keep somebody on track for 99 bucks to make sure that they don't write something that doesn't make sense because i'm not even against bad ideas you know i i i try not to use the term bad script bad ideas when you're dealing with new writers because it's rarely that you know uh we talked about some of those how did this get made movies the wicker man is a bad movie um Batman and Robin is a bad movie, but they still are movies, and the goal of new writers is to deliver something that qualifies as a movie. So it's not that the ideas are bad, it's just that they're often incomplete. They don't have all the elements of what it means to have a, a connected, strong, core story with the hero, and to understand exactly who that hero is, and what their journey is going to be. And sometimes it's important just to have somebody to ask those questions to, or to talk with about that. And to be confronted with those issues and to know, hey, if you do want to use this idea, well, these are the things you're going to have to figure out first. So I really like this $99 thing. You can, you know, go to my website services page. And that is all for this week. I will have a new show for you next week. I hope that it will have a big, fun topic. I don't know exactly what that's going to be, but stay tuned. And please leave a review on iTunes. Like three people have done that, and I think that more definitely could. Go through my tweets. You can retweet stuff. If you like what I said, retweet it. Uh, that's all for this week. New show next week. Take care.